It's so exciting to uh, preach God's Word because God's Word has power, and I uh, just can't wait to see what He's going to do through His Word uh, this morning as we look together at the Gospel of Luke. We're looking at uh, Luke this year, and if you'll take your Bibles and open with me to Luke chapter 7, we're going to be looking today at verses 36 through 50. It's Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, and uh, this is one of the most famous stories in the Gospel of Luke, I think. I love it. Uh, You probably love it, I hope. And that's part of what makes preaching it uh, so exciting and also uh, so difficult, actually, uh, because it's so good. And I'm not going to fully get it, but I'll uh, try my best. But it's a story about a Pharisee who invites uh, Jesus over to, to dinner and this sinful woman who shows up and what happens next. And you could uh, look at this story by itself, verses 36 through 50, actually almost like it's disconnected from the stories that go before and the stories that go after because there's so much in here, uh, really. Uh, A preacher named Charles Spurgeon preached five different messages uh, on this passage, and I wouldn't be surprised if he never uh, connected it to the context, and those are all good messages, I'm sure. There's a lot of different angles you could look at this passage from, but obviously Luke includes it where he does for a reason, and I think it's good to start there because it fits into an argument that Luke is making, and I think that Luke wants you to read this story thinking especially about what has gone before to make that connection. Because usually when Luke is moving into a newer thought or a newer section, he includes some sort of marker that helps you make the transition. Like in chapter 8, verse 1, as an example, he says, soon afterward. Or in chapter 8, verse 4, and when a great crowd was gathering. Or chapter 8, verse 9, and when his disciples asked him. Or chapter 8, verse 22, one day he got into a boat. And those are all what you would call markers of time. And, you know, uh, looking at this opening section of Luke, Luke chapter 1 through 8, almost every single time that Luke moves into a new thought, he begins with some way of marking the place or the time. But he doesn't do that here in verse 36. It's just kind of smooth from the previous verses to this one. One of the Pharisees asked, to eat with him. And so we're supposed to read this story thinking about what Luke's just been talking about. There's a connection. And that connection is maybe a little hard for us to remember because we haven't been in Luke chapter 7 for a few weeks now. But in verses 18 through 35, Luke has been thinking about the problem of doubt and unbelief. He's writing this gospel, this this whole gospel, that you might believe, that you might be certain. And it's like he's taking a little time here to help us think about those who don't believe. And he begins by distinguishing between doubt and unbelief because there's a difference in that a believer can doubt. And we know that because in verses 18 through 23, we see John the Baptist did. And so when we talk about this problem of unbelief, unbelief is not just looking at what's happening in the world and in God's word and struggling to understand how it all fits together. It's more defiant. It's a a refusal to submit yourself to God instead. And we get a picture of how unbelief works in verses 24 and following, where Luke tells us that after John's messengers leave, Jesus turns to the crowd and says, do you realize how privileged you were? Because you all got to go out there into the wilderness and hear the single greatest prophet who ever lived speak. And the the reason he was so great was not so much because of who he was, but instead because of when he lived. And his entire job was to prepare you for the Savior God was going to send, to stand there and to point at him. And yet, in spite of that privilege, many of those same people were beginning to question John and to reject Jesus. And the question we've been asking is why? Why did these people reject Jesus? Where is this unbelief 
coming from? And one reason we're asking that question is because when we think about unbelief, we often think primarily about people who just don't have enough information. And uh, there are certainly people who need more information, which is one reason why we send out missionaries. But that is not all there is, obviously, to this problem of unbelief. Because here, Jesus and John were standing right in front of these people, and yet they were still rejecting them. And one of the most surprising things about the people who initially rejected John and then Jesus was that they actually were the very people we might think wouldn't, which should cause us to pause for a second. Because this is maybe where it starts to get a little scary as we think about unbelief. Because it means unbelief is not just a problem for people out there who lack information. And it's not just a problem for really bad, obviously bad people either. I know we like to divide the world up, most of us, into good and bad people. And so maybe we think it, it might, must just be really bad people, irreligious people who can have all the information about Jesus and still miss it. And yet when we look at the Gospel of Luke, it actually seems like it's the exact opposite in that the very group of people we might think least likely to miss Jesus and most likely to follow him didn't. Verse 30 is almost like the punchline of verses 18 through 35 where Luke says, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. And lawyers isn't maybe the best translation for us because they weren't lawyers like people going to court and, and stuff, but were basically rich Jews who devoted their entire lives to studying God's law instead. And you know the Pharisees, I think, but both groups basically, lawyers and Pharisees, were the most religious people in Israel, uh, the most devoted, the people who knew their Bibles the best, which makes our question even harder. I mean, why did seemingly good religious people reject Jesus, people who studied the Bible, people who believed in God? Why did they have such a hard time seeing Jesus for who he truly was? Because they did in, in a big way, and they still do. There, there are a lot of religious people who miss Jesus, people sitting in church with knowledge and information who do the right thing and do the right thing again and miss, miss Jesus. And, and, you know, looking back at these Pharisees and lawyers in the Gospel of Luke, these were normally reasonable people, too. I mean, people respected them, thought of them as wise. If you had a question about the Bible, these are the kind of people you would go to and ask. And yet when it came to Jesus, this man who went around doing nothing but good, raising the dead, healing the sick, preaching the kingdom of God, when it came to Jesus, these normally uh, reasonable wise spiritual leaders responded in a way that even Jesus himself said was childish. Luke chapter 7, verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children. And not in a, a good way either, like, you know, the faith of a child. Spoiled children. The, the kind of children who make up their mind that they are mad and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. You smile they're mad. You pretend to cry, they're mad. You get stern with them, they're mad. You try to reason with them, they're mad. It's kind of funny because in a lot of other areas, these good religious people, the Pharisees, would have been easy enough to talk to, I'm sure. You would have been able to have a good discussion with them about many different things, but not about Jesus. And the question that we're asking is why? Why? What is it exactly that made it so difficult for these good people to see Jesus. Because it wasn't that he didn't make himself obvious or that he didn't do amazing things. He, he, like here, just raised somebody from the dead. And it wasn't like they weren't prepared for the, him either. They spent their entire lives reading a book God gave them about him. And he was doing the very things that book said he would. And so if you want to understand the problem, it wasn't a lack of evidence and it wasn't just ignorance. So what was it that caused them to reject Jesus? I think that's important. I'm going on and on about that because I think that's important. 
For one thing, because I don't want to be a good religious person who misses Jesus. It's possible. It's possible to have information, to be a religious person, to do the right thing and miss Jesus. I do not want to be a good religious person who misses Jesus. And I don't want you to be good religious people who miss Jesus. I don't want us to be formal Christians. You know, people who are are Christians because that's our culture without really having a relationship with Jesus. And so I want to know what is at the heart of this unbelief so I can stay away from it. And I want to hear the answer from Jesus because I know people always have excuses. I mean, I'm sure the Pharisees and the lawyers had excuses. If you asked them, they would have an, they would have had an answer, a reason they were rejecting Jesus. Nobody wants to admit that they're acting like spoiled children. Even spoiled children don't admit they are spoiled children. If they admitted it, they wouldn't be spoiled children. They're always going to blame it on someone else, and so did these religious leaders. And as Luke points out, you know who they blamed it on? They blamed it on Jesus, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, which was an objection. It's like Jesus is quoting them there. And as we read the Gospel of Luke, this was actually one of their primary core objections to Jesus. This was important to them, the Pharisees and religious people really thought they had something here. I mean, this comes up. In fact, we've already seen them grumbling about that in Luke chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, where Luke says, And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the the scribes grumbled, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And this complaint is going to come up again, too, in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so if you ask the Pharisees and lawyers why they had a problem with Jesus, they would have pointed to Jesus and said it was because he was associating with sinful people, which is maybe why Luke takes a step back in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, and looks more carefully at that objection. That's what I think is going on in this story, the connection, how it fits. These religious leaders would have said the reason they were objecting to Jesus was because he associated with sinners. And so Luke brings up that objection and looks at it more closely because this particular objection really gets at the heart of what made it so difficult for them to see Jesus. And the first thing Luke does in verse 36 is bring up a specific real-life example of just how badly they missed it. And then he gives an explanation why. It's almost like a a case study in unbelief. It helps sometimes, you know, to move from the general to the specific. And here he gets specific, like, let's make sure we understand how serious this sin is, what's really going on, and then make sure we understand where this is really going coming from by looking at an actual real-life example in verse 36. Luke writes, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, which at first, of course, is a little surprising maybe to read since Luke just told us the Pharisees were rejecting Jesus. And yet here we see that this particular Pharisee was taking the initiative to reach out to Jesus in order to have him over to his house. But unfortunately, if you keep reading, that's about the last good decision he makes. Because Luke says Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, which probably doesn't bother us at all because it seems like exactly what you would do. If someone invites you over to their house, you take a seat and start to eat. But we're going to see that there are a lot of things missing in that verse that you would expect, which is the way it normally works with good people, actually. They look good on the surface, but you look under the surface and you find something different going on. And what's going on here is that this Pharisee is pretending to show Jesus hospitality. I'm inviting you over to my house, but he's doing it in a way that is clearly, deliberately designed to insult Jesus instead. And so this is a seriously big miss. Like in the history of misses, this is a big time miss. When you step back and think 
what this is, because this is someone who's claiming to be looking forward to the Messiah, having the Messiah over to his home and treating him with disrespect. And to help you see just how much disrespect, you have to understand a little something about the Middle East and hospitality. And obviously, I've never lived in the Middle East, and so I'm not an expert, but I have read people who are. And they say that hospitality is a big deal there, even now, but especially back when Jesus lived. Apparently, there was a whole process to how you did this. And uh, there were some specific traditional courtesies they used to show respect to their guest, which we have as well, actually. We have our little rituals that we perform when we welcome someone into our home. So in America, normally we greet. We're like, hello, it's nice to see you. And we ask about their day. Someone comes in and we don't get up from our uh, couches and welcome them in. That's a little weird. And then a, a new ritual for me, if you're, if you're a vis visitor to someone's home, you take off your shoes. I didn't always do that. Marta grew up in Alaska, and apparently they did that there. But I didn't do that growing up in the East Coast. In fact, I was somewhere recently where I took off my shoes, and they offered me other shoes. And I didn't really know what to do, because I didn't have that ritual <laughs> growing up where I'm from. We didn't take off our shoes. But we would take off our coats. And so usually I would greet someone by taking their coat and finding a nice place to uh, put it. And then often, in America at least, you usually eat together almost right away. In uh, South Africa, it was different. You would go to someone's house, and uh, it would be a couple hours later that you would eat. It would be rude almost to eat right away. So I learned to like have snacks before I went. Uh, and there's more, I'm sure. But really, these kinds of rituals are so normal that we don't even think about them very much, except you know, if someone doesn't do it. And uh, you, you get a sense of how important those rituals are to you when you move into a new culture, actually, because you're like, what's going on? And so like when we moved to Africa, uh, in the Afrikaans culture at least, we found it seems like you're supposed to ask someone if they want coffee or tea several times. Would you like coffee? No. Are you sure you don't want some coffee? Yeah, I'm sure. Would you like some coffee? Okay, that sounds great. Where I grew up just asking once, or, or when you leave someone's house in South Africa, you always go to the car with them. And then you stand by the car and you talk for longer. Uh, and then you sort of follow them down the road waving. I would always have to ask Marta, like, is it okay if we go inside now? I think they're gone. Uh, where obviously we just say uh, goodbye and then people just get up. And that seems rude now, actually, having lived in South Africa, to just sit there and watch people leave. Uh, but it didn't before because... How it works when you're living in a certain culture is the rituals seem so normal that you don't even notice them until somebody doesn't do them. And so if you went over to someone's house and they did those little rituals, you wouldn't think anything. But if they didn't do any of those things that you were used to, that would be a pretty big insult. And they had those kinds of rituals in Jesus's day, probably even more so than we do today. And they meant more back then because it was like an honor-shame culture. And one thing that meant is that your status was really determined by the respect that other people showed you, and people were paying attention to all these little rituals. And the thing is that this Pharisee skipped them all. As Jesus entered the house, one scholar explains, all the traditional courtesies were admitted. Custom required a kiss of greeting, usually on the face. After the guests were seated on stools around a broad U-shaped dining couch, water and olive oil would be brought for the washing of hands and feet. Only then could the grace be offered. Finally, the guests would recline on the couch and the meal would begin, which, like I said, is a pretty big fail. This was an obvious insult that he didn't do any of those things, which everyone in the room would have noticed, even Jesus. We'll see later, he mentions it, which is why Kenneth Bailey, this Middle Eastern scholar I was talking about, writes, when these common acts of welcome were admitted, Jesus had the full right to say, I see that I'm not welcome here, and leave flushed with anger. But he didn't. That's the thing, he didn't. You can kind of go two ways. Sometimes uh, people who think they're good look at people they think are bad and and wonder, how could God ever reach out to them? But then sometimes uh, bad people can look at people who they think are good people and totally write them off as well. But Jesus doesn't. 
In Luke, we see him reaching out to tax collectors and sinners and to Pharisees as well. And here, he's even ignoring the way this Pharisee is insulting him to help him see what he's missing. He's, he's giving him a, a chance. And the way he reaches out to this Pharisee is by looking at his objection straight in the face. Literally. You remember verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And almost as if on cue, verse 37, Luke says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Luke's like, look, what do you know? Behold, here comes a sinner now. And this sinner is going to be an important part of the story, but one thing she's going to show us for sure is that this Pharisee didn't miss what God was doing through Jesus because it was hard to see. Because, I mean, even this woman saw Jesus for who he was. Luke's like, look, a woman of the city, which is sort of a funny way of describing someone, if you think about it, a woman of the city. And obviously Luke's not just saying, oh, she was from the city and not the country, if you know what I mean. Like she was an urban dweller. Oh, okay, no. This is not telling us where she stayed. This is telling us something about her character. And in case we missed it, he adds another phrase as a qualifier, who was a sinner. Which again, you have to hear the way Luke intended, because obviously everyone's a sinner, even the Pharisee with whom Jesus is eating. And Jesus has told him that, even in the chapter before. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And he goes on, bringing up what the Pharisees would have used to say that they were righteous and makes it clear that they really weren't. They weren't better than the people they were calling sinners. And so if Luke was just using this term sinner to describe people who sin, he could have said that about everybody there. Jesus went to the house of a Pharisee who was a sinner, and he sat down at the table next to Peter who was a sinner, and there was a woman there who was a sinner, and I, Luke, who am telling you this story, am a sinner. But that's obviously not how he's using this word. He's using this word the way the Pharisee would to describe a particular kind of sinner. And I don't know if we have a word uh, like that. Maybe we would just say bad person. We sometimes talk like that. There are you know, these good people somehow, churchgoers and bad people. And this woman would have been one of the bad people before she met Jesus. Most people think she was a prostitute. It doesn't say that, so we're kind of guessing, but definitely that kind of woman. She had a reputation. Some people say she's Mary Magdalene, but that doesn't make sense because Mary Magdalene's introduced in chapter 8, verse 2, and I think Luke would have named her here then. And so this is just some simple woman. And I think Luke doesn't name her because he wants us to feel the force of this. Because here is this good person who's been reading his Bible his whole life, and he is oblivious to Jesus. And yet here is this woman who doesn't even get a name. She's just a sinner standing in a Pharisee's house, and yet she totally gets it. And the fact that she's even there tells us that. Obviously, where we're from, we, when we have people over, it's just the people that we invited, that we have over. We don't usually have random people like uh, standing there watching us eat. But at a normal, traditional Middle Eastern meal like this one, there's potential for a lot of people wandering in and out, especially because this wasn't just a normal, traditional meal. It was more like a community event because here's this religious leader having this famous traveling teacher over. And so I'm sure the room was probably packed with people who just wanted to listen and see what was going to happen. In fact, there seems to have been some talk about this in the community building up to this meal, like anticipation. Jesus is going to the Pharisee's house. Because if you look at verse 37, Luke says, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, which kind of sounds like she was just out walking around or something while Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house and she heard someone say he was there. And so she dropped everything and ran over in the middle of the meal or something. But if you look down at verse 45, Jesus tells Simon, who's the Pharisee, from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet, which means she was there even as Jesus arrived. So she was like there before waiting. And I think what probably happened was Jesus had been out there in the world teaching and sharing the gospel, preaching the kingdom, and this woman had been listening. She was in the crowd. She was impacted. She was changed. She believed what she heard. And so when Jesus came to her town, she was keeping track of his movements so she could learn more. And word started going around town that this Pharisee, this religious leader, was having Jesus over for a meal, and so she found out exactly when that meal was going to happen and made sure she was there from the moment Jesus arrived, which I think must have been pretty awkward. That's, that's my point, because 
even if there were a lot of people there, if that was normal, there weren't a lot of people there like this. This is not the kind of person you would expect to show up at a, a good religious person's house at all. And it definitely took some courage uh, on her part. I don't know if you've ever walked into a room where you knew the people there didn't want you there or were going to be looking down on you. Uh, but maybe some of you have. And so you know uh, the kind of courage it takes to go into a room filled with people like that on your own. Uh, most people would give anything to avoid that. We hate people looking down on us. And there's no question they were looking down on her, but to her it doesn't seem to matter. She just needs to be near Jesus because she knows who Jesus is. So she gets there early and she waits. And I don't think she, as she was standing there, she was really intending to make a scene. I don't think as she was getting ready, she was like, you know what I should do tonight? I should go over to the Pharisee's house and just start weeping. In other words, I don't think she planned to make a fuss. Instead, verse 37, Luke says, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the tables, table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, which is perfume. It was pretty hot where Jesus lived and their noses worked like ours. And so people, especially ladies, were looking for ways to make themselves smell better. And they often brought this ointment with them. They even had little jars of perfume they could wear around their neck, almost like a necklace if they wanted. And you see this woman brought her perfume in an alabaster flask, which is a way of saying this is a little more expensive. Uh, alabaster was a kind of marble. And the fact that Luke mentions she brought this alabaster flask probably indicates she came with the intention of anointing Jesus. That's, I think, her original design, to anoint Jesus. Because you remember from the Old Testament, anointing is a big deal. Even the word Messiah literally means anointed one. And so anointing was a way of setting someone apart as a priest or a king. And so I think you can imagine this woman seeing Jesus and hearing him preach and really feeling the weight of who he was, the significance. This is the promised one. She starts to get excited about it. She wants everyone to know. And so she comes up with a plan. When she heard about Jesus eating at the Pharisee's house, she decided to come to this meal with this very expensive alabaster flask filled with perfume in order to anoint Jesus and show everyone there that she saw him as the anointed Messiah, which was actually a pretty good idea if you think about it. It's a beautiful expression of faith. But as we look at the story, she never even got that far because almost as soon as Jesus entered the room, she just became one big crying mess. Verse 38, again. And standing behind him at his feet, which sounds funny, but you remember Jesus wasn't sitting in a, a chair like we do. He was reclining. That's how they ate dinner in those days, almost like laying down by the table with his head propped up on his elbow and his feet as far away from him as possible where this woman was standing. And Luke says, weeping. And we're so used to the story that maybe we expect her to do that. Like, oh, it's normal for us to see this lady there weeping. Oh, yeah, that's the lady weeping. But it's not. And I'm not preaching the sermon as well as I wish, because if I were, were preaching as well as I wish, you would not only feel the shock of what this Pharisee failed to do, you would feel the shock of what this woman was doing. But try to picture this, even, even now. If someone was here, like, standing beside me, just bawling, while the rest of us are fine, you know, like trying to study the Bible or talk theology, she's just crying. We usually get pretty distracted pretty easily, and we would be distracted, especially seeing how she already stood out the way she did, because she was definitely an uninvited guest. This wasn't someone the Pharisee wanted there. And even as an uninvited guest, there were normally rules for how uninvited people are supposed to act in situations like this. If I go somewhere and I'm in the audience, I'm not supposed to become the center of attention. But obviously she was, and it gets more surprising when you put yourself in her situation, because if you go to a place where you don't think you'll be accepted, usually you try to keep everybody from noticing you. But as this woman is standing there in the presence of Jesus, she cannot contain herself. And so she starts weeping, which in almost every other possible situation, obviously, would be the absolute wrong way to respond to someone and a situation like this, but in this particular situation is exactly 100% how you should respond when you're standing in the presence of the Savior of the world. Well, the good religious people are, all, are there, like all formal and serious, looking at Jesus, trying to be important. And maybe he's like, okay, okay, so I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you. She's there standing behind Jesus, just letting it all out. And he's like, try to keep things under control, you know? as he's watching the Pharisee. Um, uh, okay, you know, like, uh, please, please. 
we're trying to have an important meeting. I've got questions to ask. Could everyone settle down? And maybe, I don't know, maybe she quiets down for a moment when he begins again, and then she's like just tears all over again. And I'm sure everyone was kind of looking at each other at this point, and then back at this prostitute is just staring at Jesus and weeping and wailing and crying to the point where she's able to use her tears to wet Jesus' feet, actually. And that's a lot of crying. And I'm guessing part of why she's crying is because she saw the way the Pharisee was insulting Jesus along with everyone else. And she just loves Jesus and she can't stand to see him humiliated. And so she decides to do something about it and begins to use her tears to wet Jesus' feet. Which is surprising too. There's just a lot of clues in this passage where things are done differently than you would expect that are supposed to get you looking more carefully. Because normally, if you're going to wash someone's feet, you would use water, obviously. But she's using tears. And then also, Luke says, her flask of ointment. And so she anoints his feet with the ointment, which is not what you would normally anoint. You would normally anoint the head, but she anoints the feet. And then, of course, she has to find something to wipe the tears anointment with. And so Luke says she wiped it with the hair of her head, which would have been the most shocking thing of all. And I can't imagine, really, the Pharisee's face. He must have lost it at that point, because in that culture back then, ladies absolutely did not let down their hair. In fact, even a a little while after Jesus, there's something called the Talmud. These are like Jewish teachings outside the Bible. And the Talmud is talking about divorce. And it lists some reasons why they thought a man can get divorced. And, And it says, a woman goes with her hair unfastened, let down, or bathes with men. And those are like two almost equal bad things in their mind, bathing with other men or letting your hair down in public. It says a man has a religious duty to divorce a woman who does something like that because they saw the letting down of hair as suggestive, if you know what I'm saying. But this woman doesn't care what they say or think. All she cares about is honoring Jesus and she shows her commitment to him by drying his feet with her hair as she's weeping and continually stooping down and kissing them, which is... Awesome. It's worship. That's what this is. She gets Jesus. That's why her response is appropriate, because this isn't the kind of reaction you give just any man, but this is exactly the kind of reaction God deserves when he comes in human form to save the world. But it's not the kind of reaction that this good religious leader thought was appropriate. In fact, it caused him to say to himself, "Uh, this is what we've been talking about. This This is exactly what we've been talking about. Verse 39, I mean, this is our whole problem with Jesus. And this is where we're getting to it, because here you've got all these good people who are completely missing what God's doing, even though they're reading their Bibles and trying to do all these good things. And you've got these other people who didn't know nearly as much as they did and were doing all these things that God hated. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, over and over, they were clearly able to see what God was accomplishing through Jesus. And you're like, why? What's going on? Because it's not that it was hard to see or complicated. There must be something else. And so Luke brings up this specific illustration here, an example. And in this story, it's almost like he helps us analyze it. First, he gives the example of someone who misses it so badly. And then second, an explanation. And the explanation begins with a wrong approach to God. If you're going to understand why this Pharisee is missing it, you have to understand what his objection to Jesus says about the way he thought about God. And you have to understand what it says about the way he thought about God because it's the way a lot of people still do think about God and religion. And it's why they can be so close to Jesus and have so much information about Jesus and miss Jesus. And so listen to what the Pharisee says in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Which at first, coming from where we come from, seems like a strange thing to say. Uh, and, and maybe nowadays we're even a little like, what is wrong with this guy? Where, where, where is he coming from? Because, you know, here he's got this woman breaking down in his house weeping, and he's not even like, hey, could someone get her a tissue? She kind of seems uh, upset. Instead, he's just thinking about Jesus all angry. But the reason he's thinking about Jesus is not just because he's like an insensitive jerk, but because he's looking for the Messiah. 
And he thinks the fact that, that, that Jesus is letting this woman touch him means that he isn't the Messiah. In fact, it means more than that. It means he isn't even a prophet. And the reason he thinks that about Jesus says something important about the way he thinks about religion and God. And you need to understand how this works. You absolutely need to understand how this works because this is coming from somewhere, this objection. And this is where so many religious people stumble when it comes to Jesus, they, people who come to church. The reason many religious people miss Jesus is not because they aren't religious, but because they are religious. And the way they're thinking about religion is absolutely upside down, like this Pharisee. And so why does this make him upset? It makes him upset because he knows, as he looks at God, that God is glorious and God is holy. And he wants to experience God's presence. And the way he thinks you can experience the presence of God is by basically keeping yourself from all the stuff that would make you unclean or dirty or unholy. Which tells you something about the way he thinks about himself, right? It's like, here I am. I am basically good. I'm fine. But the problem is that there's all this stuff out there that isn't. And so he thinks, this Pharisee, his mindset is that the primary obstacle to experiencing the presence of God doesn't come from something inside of you, but all this stuff that's outside instead. And so that's why he's upset. This sinful woman is touching Jesus. He assumed if Jesus knew who the woman was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him because that would make him unclean. And he assumed that about Jesus because he assumed Jesus is approach to religion was the same as his. But Jesus wants him to see here that it actually isn't. Jesus's approach to religion and this Pharisees are different, like fundamentally different. And not just this Pharisees either. There is a wrong way people think about God and religion. That's almost like our default mode as humans, like how we're sinfully wired to think it works. And while I know some of the particulars of this Pharisee's approach seem different than most people we know nowadays, the basic concept really isn't because you talk to most people and most people think of themselves as basically good. Good people, like capable people, clever people, competent people. I can do this kind of people. And so if they have problems in their life, it's not so much because of something inside of them. That's not where they're looking. It's because of the stuff that's out there, like the stuff outside them. And that's why religion appeals to them. It's like, this is what you can do to clean yourself up, to make yourself worthy of God. People think of their problems as coming from outside of them and the answers as coming primarily from inside them. And that's this Pharisee's approach, essentially, which is why the Pharisees had all these rules and regulations and rituals and other ways to keep themselves clean, which obviously this, wouldn't, this woman hadn't been doing at all. And that's why he's disgusted by her and thinks Jesus must not know who she is. And yet Jesus says, you know what the irony here is? You think the problem is that I don't know who this woman is when the real problem is that you don't know who you are. Verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Jesus answering is kind of funny because Simon said it to himself. He said, I, this, Jesus must not be a prophet. And so Jesus answers him because Jesus knows what he's thinking. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Obviously, Jesus knew, knew who this woman was. He actually knew what Simon was thinking to himself. And so he wants Simon to know that he wasn't allowing this woman to act this way toward him because he wasn't a prophet. He was allowing this woman to act this way towards him because he was more than a prophet. And that's actually what men needed. And he tells a story to try to show the difference in verse 41. You have to catch this. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which will love him more? And it's kind of like he's trying to establish a principle in Simon's mind about a man's relationship with God because Simon was working on the wrong basis. Simon was looking at this woman and thinking she can't have a relationship with God because she's not as good as we are. And so in Simon's mind, it was clearly about performance. There were those who kept the law and had the right to enter into God's presence, and there were those who didn't, and they couldn't. But here, Jesus says, that's the problem, Simon. 
That's actually, that is the exact problem because no one has done that, not even you. You are starting off in the wrong place. The problem is not outside of you, it is inside of you. Inside all of us, we're broken. We're not basically good, not basically capable. And so if God were a money lender, we would all owe. And I guess maybe one owes 500 denarii and the other 50, but we all owe. Whether you drown in 50 feet of water or 500 feet of water, it doesn't really matter. You still drown. And the only way for us to even begin to have a relationship with God is if he chooses to cancel your debt because none of us can pay it. He has to forgive it, which is the difference between the gospel and a lot of religion and This is where we have to get. This is where you have to get if you're going to understand this message. And it's either going to make you angry or it's going to make you run to Jesus. Those are like your two options. For for good people like Simon, a relationship with God starts with what I do. But for Jesus, it starts with what God's done. The problem comes from inside of us. And the solution has to come from outside of us. And if you don't get that, honestly, you won't get much, no matter how long you study the Bible. Because in order for any of us to have a relationship with God at all, God has to take the debt we owe on himself and forgive it. He has to pay it. There's no other way that you can enter into his presence. You can't pay that debt back yourself. None of us can. There isn't any one of us who can keep ourselves pure enough or be good enough to have peace with God on the basis of what he's done. That is like, as one person put it, thinking that you can be good enough to earn a relationship with God, that is like trying to climb to the moon on a rope made of sand. A relationship with God, peace with God, is always only on the basis of God showing mercy, which means, of course, the primary obstacle to a relationship with God is not how well you've kept the law, but instead whether or not you really sense your need for his forgiveness. Do you hear that? Do you you know how desperately you need God's forgiveness? Because you can read your Bible all day long. You can come to church your entire life. You can pray day after day. But if you don't sense your need of forgiveness, if you don't know your need of of a Savior, I'm telling you, God could show up at your house and you would miss him. And we can. We can use Simon and this woman as an example, verse 44, because Jesus did. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? And uh, Simon's like, it's kind of hard not to. I entered your house. You gave me no water for, for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And this is important because Jesus is like, Simon, what do you think is going on here? Clearly, you think this is saying something about me. You think this is saying I'm not a prophet, but that's where you're missing it, actually, because you know, you want to know why this woman is acting the way she is? It's not because I'm not a prophet. It's because I'm more. I am Savior. And so while you think this means I don't know who she is, I'll tell you, what it actually means, it means she knows who I am. She's here showing this kind of love because she's been forgiven, verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And that's past tense. This is done. And in case you're still confused, Simon, do you know who's the one who forgave her? Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. It's me. And that's why you haven't been able to see me, Simon. You can't see me because you're not seeing you. And so you've been looking for God to send you a teacher when you needed God to send you something so much better. You need God to send you a savior. Which Simon and the Pharisees and religious good people won't accept. Because it means they need one. And so verse 49, instead of repenting, they try to come up with another way to minimize Jesus. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? It's God, guys. 
the second person of the Trinity. He has become man, and he is sitting there at your table, which makes the way you're thinking about yourself so crazy because you're sitting there thinking that you're such a good person and that you've hardly done anything wrong, when the reality is you are so proud that God has become man and showed up at your house and you're acting like you have the right to judge him, which is serious sin and deserves to be judged, which is honestly often what is so very hard for people who think they're good people to accept and why they keep missing Jesus good people like Simon. Simon was a big sinner, but he didn't recognize that. And until he did, he wasn't going to see Jesus for who he was, and he wasn't going to be forgiven. And I think Jesus makes that clear if you look again at verse 44. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, Simon. And Jesus is going to start going back and forth between the woman and Simon. Watch this. He says, you gave me no water, but she has wet my feet. You gave me no kiss but she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet. And here's a switch, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. And did you, did you catch it, the switch? Probably would have been easier if you were there that day looking at Simon, looking at the woman, looking at Simon, looking at the woman, as Jesus was talking, as Jesus is like, you, she, you, she, you, she. What? He. No, you anymore. It's he. It's just generic. It's not Simon. It's not Simon. Because Simon's response to Jesus illustrates he has not been forgiven. And Jesus is not going to say he is. Because no one is forgiven until they know they need to be forgiven. And no one who comes to Jesus to be forgiven comes unless they know they need to be forgiven much. And please hear me now, because I know sometimes this last part maybe confuses us. Because he who is forgiven much loves much. And he who is forgiven little loves little. Sounds like Jesus is saying some people need to be forgiven a lot and other people don't need to be forgiven as much. But I don't think that's the point. If, if anything, it's just that there are different kinds of sinners. Sinners who look religious and sinners who don't. And both kinds of sinners are saved the same way, not by what they do, but by what God's done for them through Jesus. Only sometimes it's harder for people who think they're good to see it. Which is why if you've lived a good life and you grew up in the right family and you tried to be a pretty moral person and you love Jesus, it is a huge miracle. I remember sharing my testimony with someone uh, at a little market uh, near Johannesburg and uh, someone named Lucky, and he said, you must have been a really big sinner to love Jesus like that. And I said, you know, it, it was even a bigger miracle than that because I wasn't, at least not in the world's eyes. I was like four, and yet God still humbled me and, sh and showed me just how bad my good deeds were and how much I needed him. And I wonder about you. Like, have you been humbled? Do you know your need of Jesus, if you've ever seen that you desperately need God to become man, to die in your place so that you can have peace with him. A lot of people haven't, even though they've come to church. I don't know if Simon actually ever understood. I, I doubt it. But I do know that you will never be able to experience the love and mercy of God and really see Jesus until you've come face to face with your need of him. And that means you have to see, stop seeing sin as something outside of you and start understanding the sin that comes from inside of you and the foolishness of trying to approach God on the basis of your own religious efforts. And so if you're here and you're religious, that's good. But do you love Jesus? The ultimate test of your relationship with Jesus is your love for Jesus. Because your love for Jesus shows really whether you understand your need for him. And this story, honestly, I think is a little bit of a warning 
for us because it's so easy for us, you know, to get so comfortable and to think of unbelief as a problem out there for people who lack information, for bad people, for irreligious people. But there are many religious people who are a lot like Simon who are pretty satisfied with doing the right thing and going to church and religious activity without actually having a heart for Jesus. But God isn't. God isn't satisfied with that. Jesus isn't. Jesus wants more than your morality. Jesus wants more than your religious activity. He wants you to love him. That is normal Christianity. Do you love him? And I know that's a hard question for some of us who are sensitive and feel it. We're like, I don't love Jesus the way I want. Okay, go to Jesus with your lack of love. See that as sin. He is a savior for sinners who know they need a savior. And even as Christians, we need to work at remembering that because the danger is the longer you've been a Christian, the easier it is for you to become good at sort of the outward religious activities. And you start maybe looking a little better on the outside or at least feeling like you do while slowly but surely forgetting how desperately wicked you are and how much you need Jesus. And so your relationship with Jesus as a result slowly becomes more and more detached, kind of like Simon's, and you grow colder and colder toward him as a result. And we have to fight that. We absolutely have to fight that and pray that God helps us learn from this sinful woman and reminds us over and over and over and over again that we need much more than a teacher and we need much more than a set of instructions to follow. We desperately, we are people who desperately need a savior and we need salvation. And that savior is Jesus. It's his job to save sinners and it's our job to love him for it. Let's pray. God, we come to you. We, we, we know this passage is way better than I can preach it. And so we just ask that the Spirit of God would preach it. Please preach it to our hearts. Help us to show, show us, help us to see the, the, just the deadness of formal religion without a heart for Jesus. Help us to see how much we need you, Jesus. Make our hearts alive with love for you, Jesus. We come to you as people who uh, so quickly, so easily make this so much less than it really is. And uh, we ask that you would help us to learn from this unnamed woman about what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. And it's not super, super complicated. It, it, it requires that we know we need you, Jesus. And yet for us who are so proud, that can be so hard for us to really feel and to really believe. And so, God, do the miracle. Do the miracle in our hearts day after day after day after day after day after day, week after week after week after week. Make us a church that is, is not just like Simon, but is like this sinful woman who, who, who doesn't maybe know much, but knows who you are, Jesus, and loves you for it. We pray this in your name. Amen.